Welcome to Thrive Cash and with me I have Maya Vohe, the famed Maya Vohe. Uh, she is a globally recognized growth advisor and practitioner. She's advising so many companies, small startups, big startups. She's worked in Google, Rocket Internet and so many other places. Maya, you also have a new book coming up and you've been doing lots and lots of podcasts on product-led. Recently, you know, I attended the product drive I was telling you just before the call. Uh, welcome. Welcome to Thrivecast, Maya. How are you? Yeah, thank you so much. Every time somebody reads my intro, I get a little bit cringed. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I have been working for a decade or something like that. But for me, you know, I'm very real as a person. So what I soon realized is that if you are working with a big company such as Bayer, Heineken or Google or Rocket Internet, it's not the same as if you are like this bootstrap startup. Right. So my frustration, my pain, my mission is to actually translate what is good of that science and develop what else do we need in order to securely come to the product market fit and do just a little bit better than the stat that 95 percent of innovation will fail. So this is how I am. How are you? This is this is amazing, Maya. So you, you know, uh, I've been listening to you. I've been you know watching you on the product-led uh, podcast. Uh, you've you've done so many of the podcasts. You've talked to so many of the people. So here's my chance to pick your brains, you know, and do a reverse podcast, if you will, instead of you uh, being the you know the host and and someone like me being a guest. We'll do the reverse, and I'm going to pick some pick some of your brains, you know. Uh, after having you talk to so many early stage startups, after having talked to lots and lots of these companies, uh, I want to kind of, you know, gauge on a particular topic today, which is about early stage startups and technical founders. How should they really think about the PLG journey, specifically if they want to get into the growth, uh, growth side of the story? How should they start? So uh, let me start with maybe a very broad question. Uh, do you see growth very different for uh, maybe a small stage startup versus uh, mid to large size companies. Do you do you want to start from there on why is, you know, why should small companies start thinking about growth right away? Yeah, cool. So ultimately, we are all building scalable and foreseeable ways how to in business, right? So I don't like words marketing and growth and sales and like all this weird camp, but look, if you don't have money on your bank account, you have no business, simple as that. So in order to secure the existence of your business, you have to sell or just like gain some funding. And that's pretty much it. That's mission critical for you. And as you are developing the product, you are also testing like product market fit and developing a business model at the same time, because the majority of us, when we are doing startups, we have like three or maybe six months of lifeline in order to make it or break it. That's it. And just like today, I had a little call with a founder who's applying next week for Y Combinator, and mm -hmm. he's like a typical technical founder. So uh, he's trying to avoid personal contact at all possible costs, and he was just like texting me all the time and I was like listen we have to go to the call we have to align we have to like resolve this and he was like okay next week I am pitching and I need to have 500 signups for my beta and I was thinking about scraping emails of some of the sales people <laughs> in the UK and I was like listen I had like stories when founders just like with one post on social media groups so I have a 9k Facebook group here and I have cases like with one post they got 200 registrations or something like that 
And I was literally like, why are you making this more difficult than it needs to be? Because you are trying to avoid being exposed or just like making sure that like you are talking to people or something like that. So I do think that a lot of us are introverts and that we have certain biases towards certain channels and growth techniques. If you have a product market fit, customer acquisition cost, you gain some referrals and something beautiful is going on in your product without you necessarily investing your human touch. But in order to get there, we do things that don't scale, such as posting in a Facebook group, such as going out and speaking on a conference or actually like do sales calls ourselves. And I'm always like, despite all these biases, of avoiding direct human-to-human communication. I'm just like, listen, if that would be mission critical, would you do it? If your company's survival depended on that, would you do it? And that adds up a wonderful perspective into what is mission critical and what is a must-win battle. So all these young founders, millennial founders, looks like you know talking to people is a very difficult ordeal. I think even the buyers, uh, and the users' behaviors have changed, right? I think I was uh, maybe looking at some of a preview of your book, uh, and you mentioned that the behaviors of the buyers have changed uh, so much so that people don't want to talk to people anymore. So uh, talking about that, and I'm touching upon the introvertness of the founder, uh, how do they, well, could you maybe provide some baseline guidance of uh should they start thinking about product-led growth from the very outset as they are building their company? Uh, typically, I see founders in you know in US act very differently than in Asia Pacific, than in Europe. Uh, many of them, because of the age-old wisdom of sales-led growth, you know sometimes you know kind of uh, bank upon SLG as their primary way of business. So, could you maybe help maybe establish a basic fact of should they think if it's an early stage founder maybe even a technical founder should they think about product-led growth as the first go-to-market strategy uh, what are your thoughts about that no <laughs> it all depends on the pro on the customer journey right so a couple of weeks ago my husband and i we bought our first mercedes-benz and it's a beautiful car but i would never ever ever buy it thank you <laughs> appreciate it. it it's a gorgeous um, but nevertheless, look, I would never buy it via internet, right? I would never buy something that costs like 70K like without driving it, without feeling it, without touching it, without having this feeling of confidence and joy as I try this. So the first factor is there is a different customer journey and there is a different price range because if I'm buying something very complex, even as a B2B organization, for example, like a CRM or like a new accounting mm -hmm. on Iraper software, it's impossible that I would just like play around a little bit without intersecting with a human being on at least like a sales score or something like that because I'm just too stupid to understand it and not just too, too stupid. I don't think that I would have to work that hard without being guided in order to understand the product before I am convinced that it provides me some value added. And nowadays, when, when it comes to the majority of digital products, you have to give before you get, right? So this principle is very, very, very important. Is this saturated arena with uh, AA on emergence and everything like that. And you have to like experience a fraction of the value of at least like 
build or establish some trust before you are ready to take it for a spin, because otherwise, why should you care in the first place? And um, just like the other side of the equation to is, is cost, right? If you sell mm -hmm. something at like 30 euros of subscriptions per month, or sorry, you're into dollars. <laughs> um, but if something is really cheap, if your like annual contract is approximately 600 euros, it would literally cost you more to sell it than you would make of a client. So in order for that, like unit economics, business model to work, you need volume in order to achieve critical mass. And we'll talk about pricing later on extensively, mm -hmm. but these are like kind of variables. How I think about this is product led on point and cool. Yes. Is it always applicable? Contrary to my dear friend's opinion, best push. I don't really think so. So what I think what you're seeing, Maya, is that, you know, if the price range is slightly on the lower side and if your ICP is it's a more or less, yeah, uh, then that case product-led growth might be the right way. Uh, that, it's almost a must because just like if you yeah. are investing in ads, you know that if uh, like you are in the US or something like that, it will cost you at least $100 in order to sell something, right? You can definitely not afford like the salesperson. You maybe cannot even afford uh, an acquisition for ads. So you have to be clever about this. You need leverage. I'm definitely pro product-led growth, but I don't want people that use it as an excuse not to go on a sales course because sometimes sales course are needed. Yeah, so maybe uh, um, extending that, let's say the, the founders, they, they, they decide that product-led growth is the right fit for them. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk a little, you know, in, in the, you know uh, later on the call about how do they go build their product. But uh, let's say they have a self-serve product. How do they bring an initial awareness to their product? They may not have Ooh, enough marketing dollars. So I'm talking, one, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm talking about uh, leading um, the founders, essentially starting the journey on initial awareness of their self-service PLG product. How, how do they think they generally do it? Mm -hmm. So again, there are two types of channels, the ones that we like as technical founders and the ones mm -hmm. that we try to avoid at all possible costs. The ones that we like are surprise, surprise, low touch. And mm -hmm. this is like a typical PLG. So just like thinking that building it and people will magically come and refer others to the product um, that doesn't work that way. Usually we have like a little bit of automated stuff, for example, with advertising, with search ads, or even like outreach. This is what we like to do, right? We like to mm -hmm. scrape. We like to get rid of this. We like to automate things, which is great. But you know, the problem is that sometimes you might automate something which is broken and have the wrong messages so it still pays off a little bit to test it manually on a smaller center before you go hardcore and then we have like another bias which comes to channel right and for example a lot of technical people are thinking oh nobody clicks to act ads are stupid i have gazillion ad blockers here or just like instagram what this is for influencers this is how women wear lipsticks this is not how b2b companies are behaving so we should go on twitter discord reddit the serious channel and by the way i don't like linkedin because people are harassing me on linkedin and i don't want to be perceived as crying ceo right so these are those type of biases but nevertheless um just like in terms of 
how our mental models work, it's really, really, really simple. I was working with a company that was um, producing liquid system for automated cars um, a while back, and they were trying to do like a marketing strategy. And I was like, what the fuck? You are working with five development centers for cars and you know everybody. So just write a freaking email. So listen, friend. Henry, for the sake of an example, where do you get the majority of information that you need for your research and development work? What fairs do you, you do you visit? Do you follow any influencer? Is there some professional group that you like to participate with? What makes you smart? What makes you intelligent about the job? And the external selection, first of all, needs to be adjusted to the ICP that you are targeting. And you can easily find this down by asking them, right? You don't have to go into testing like in a gazillion different channels in order to find the ones because usually it's very 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 simple at the beginning on uh, in leasing services businesses you will get like 70 percent of business through the referrals this is how it is and for just like swiping your phone and finding a couple of people a couple of friends that will buy from you or refer you further and it's simple like this to get to 100 customers it's literally done as that but that doesn't mean that you have a product market fit right because you should still build a scalable machine and that comes down to having an analytics to having attribution system to know where your customers are coming from and then eventually as you experiment you learn how to find more of those customers and this was a very long answer um but yeah this is like a very boiling question for me because um i hear it on a daily basis this is this is super and you know what i think what you're trying to say is that uh there are uh, the techniques for PLG is slightly or very different than the SLG, right? In 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 your case, what you're mentioning is, uh, you know, invest in marketing website, invest in some automation about your messaging and narrative, invest in SEOs, uh, maybe, maybe get out there, you know, uh, have conversations with with people, maybe community building and stuff like that. So maybe let me ask maybe a slightly different question in the SLG world. Uh, and a founder would go and, you know, hit up the ICP cold calls or whatever that might be and have so many conversations. You know, I think you and I, we've touched upon that sometime back is that some of these founders will spend 30, 40 calls a week, you know, talking to their ICPs. Oh, but in the PLG oh, world, leads, yeah. uh, but in the PLG world, uh, you know, I'm guessing things would be very different, right? If you, if you have your product out there and then you know uh, leads are more inbound rather than outbound uh, you know how do you qualify these customers maybe start off with uh, is this the right idea to not have conversations with customers in the very first go uh, I'm talking purely early stage startups right so they don't have a market fit yet they don't have a product market fit yet uh, but yet, sometimes they avoid having conversations with customers with the hope that the uh, the end customers or the users will find value directly on their website or directly going to the product, and assume that they might find some values. Uh, how do you? How do you? What would be your advice on uh, how should they think about customer conversations? Uh, definitely to avoid some of these calls, but be, make it much more qualified for for the customers. Literally by revamping it as learning and helping people, right? Mm -hmm. So as a founder, you are probably very passionate how to solve a specific problem. This is how you went in business. And in order to solve it efficiently, you need feedback. You 
groups and you can measure feedback by having a good analytic system. That's cool. But you don't necessarily understand why. In order to help users use your product more successfully, it's very good to just like go on a cop on a call with them and learn what they need, what they don't like. And I just like reframe it that selling and research is helping. It's our best attempt to be like, the most effective in solving this problem possible. And I don't necessarily think that there is a clear differentiation between product and sales-led world, because if you look at Amplitude or Zoom or like all the famous PLG companies, they all have like an enterprise or custom package, right? So whenever you don't personalize programs and pricing packages to different personas, you are leaving money on the table. And mm -hmm. in my world, there are two and more way how to make like 10k a month which is like maybe a lifeline for the majority of let's say solopreneurs or like very small things it's like you can sell 10 packages for 1000 euros or you can sell 100 packages for 100 euros so what would your icp buy and the good news is that you can even change the target audience if you can still deliver value, right? So when it comes to deciding whether it's product-led or not, we are optimizing for adoption here. And whenever a product would have better value added if you have more users to it, for example, networking apps, for example, social media, and all the other plenty of users, you are optimizing for adoption, not necessarily profit. So it would benefit you more to have more users at more reasonable price in order to deliver more value. This is the better game, how would you play it? But again, it depends on the product category and what what can you optimize for? Because sometimes we just need money on the bank account and we cannot invest in getting like 1,000 users. So, uh, Maya, what you're saying is um, optimize. I mean, I, li I like it. I'll probably even, you know, quote it sometime later as well. Optimi <laughs> optimize for adoption versus optimize for pricing. Uh, it's difficult, uh, you know, for early stage founders when... Uh, they are either cash strapped or they have very less cash flow. I mean, mm -hmm. remember, they might be either bootstrapped at that particular stage. Uh, and depending upon the VC winter is on or not, they may not have actually raised much money. Uh, in such a case, optimized for adoption, you know, might be a death knell for them. So they might get, you know, if they're, you know, if they plan to monetize after six months to a year's time, that's a, that's a large amount of time when they don't have the money. So how do they think uh, in this day and age, you know, is there a balance to, to be had between adoption versus pricing? Uh, I know we'll touch upon pricing a little bit, but maybe some thoughts on how do you think about optimizing for adoption at an early stage company? Uh, is that, is that, is that difficult? Yeah, I don't think much. I just do things that are mission critical. So each day I start by sitting down and writing down three priorities and what is like absolutely mission critical to achieve, which objective. And I make all the decisions through the prism if it is mission critical for me to achieve this objective. That gives you a wonderful line of permission to say no, because what is focus? It's all about saying no, right? And that is like a really, really, really good prism into first deciding of what 
must you achieve in order to secure the existence of your business? And then just like to reframe all the rest, clutter, like all the S, like shiny object syndromes and opportunities out there through the prism, how likely it is going to help me take there. And of course, like you shouldn't lose the product vision on a go, right? Because I had mentored a company that was selling analytical solutions and they accidentally sold something to Walmart, which costed like a couple of 10,000 K a year, not a month. And then like the team was hijacked for working for this client. It was just like a company with a white client for like making sure that the service runs because they had this contract. So in terms of customer co-creation, you shouldn't be like changing yourself into a company that serves a market of one. That's very dangerous because you just become this internal agency and you no longer have your vision and your roadmap. It sucks. Um, later on, you can just like play around with segmentation a little bit and select the segments with higher willingness to pay. So even though it is not your ideal persona, your ideal segment from a get-go, there are some people with a burning pain that you can solve this problem to good enough, well enough, in order to bootstrap that revenue into your future development. There are always things that we can do. Just like the Problem is that we have to do things that are mission critical. And if your mission critical is to get like 50K on the bank account, this is what you should be optimizing for. Sorry. That's, that's very interesting. So, you know, um, I'm, I was taking notes as you, you know, speak market of one. I've seen that happen. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you mentioned about, you know, the case with Walmart. I've actually met one AI founder here in Seattle and, uh, you know, they started selling to Amazon. Right. Uh, it's, looks good on market. paper, huh? <laughs> looks good on paper, and that's the first customer, and now they are stuck with it. Um, touching upon that, right? So you know, you mentioned about segmentation. You mentioned about you know, going slightly broader. Um, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but there is just one strategy that I would love to um, mention here. So it's pre-selling. And just like making sure that you are not building something that market doesn't want. So whenever I have an innovation in mind, I like to test it by selling it on a couple of demo calls with either a PDF or just like a PowerPoint. This is how I call my Google Slides or mirror board. And just like talking it through if people would be able to pledge the money on it. So I like to sell it before I ever build it whenever this is possible so that I'm not wasting a lot of effort into building some freaking Frankenstein that nobody would like. And it's also very motivating for me if I do it because whenever I do that and have a social commitment that I should finish something by a certain day, otherwise other people are going to be very mad at me mm -hmm. i do it reselling that's an amazing technique so uh tell tell me more a little a little about it uh, maya so when you when you are doing this pre-selling and i saw that uh you know your gtm strategist book as well right uh you mentioned about hey this if this is what i build would you buy it uh would you also you know uh, i know you you have talked about you know, talk about the pains, you know, talk about the gains associated, you know, to the product that you sell. But would you also put pricing as part of your yes. pre-selling? Oh, definitely, definitely. Especially if you are bootstrapping, because not only are you testing product market and business model at the same time, the question to ask is, would they buy it at this price? 
And mm -hmm. willingness to pay is actually a very, very, very important differentiator because I've seen companies that have been building these media machines and like Instagram followerships or LinkedIn followerships or forgive me for saying this, but the audience with very limited to no willingness to pay. It's just like vanity metrics. These are just like likes and hoorays and you, my man, go, go. Um, so it has very little to do with um, just like generating and creating demand that is willing to pay. So this is absolutely mission critical to test, especially if you don't have like an investment, feasible investment or a lot of lifeline. You have to do this. You shouldn't mess around. So um, I guess the next question would be, how do we test willingness to pay, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. the answer is never ask this directly. I did this mistake once and it was one of the cringiest sales meetings that I ever had, right? So I was on this discovery call and I presented this service concept to a guy and I was like, mm, now listen, how much would you be willing to pay for that? And he like literally did a face palm and he was like, I don't know, I have never bought this before. I don't think it exists. I have no references. Why are you asking me this? And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because just like, it's not customer jobs to do the pricing for you. It's your freaking job. I mean, you can collect feedback and you can like learn a lot from interacting with the market, but at least like have a little bit of an inception. And reality, at least in GTM, is to be trapped in this wiggle room of 20 to 30% from your competitors. So people will always have an alternative, even though it is an Excel sheet or something like that. But if there is a problem, trust me, they are solving it somehow house and you should figure it out how and how much can they invest in it so there is this wiggle room but there is also like this opportunity to position yourself and positioning like i mean it's not that we could be the next apple from the get-go by going on a stage and doing this revolutionary keynote no like usually we just have to make sure that we are selling to people with decent willingness to pay that everything goes nicely because if they don't have a burning pain and willingness to pay for this you have no business and you can have a pipeline of how many leads you want but if you're not getting any money in your chances of survival are either slim so um yeah i was going on a rant how to do willingness to pay <laughs> testing do you have any questions to add or do we move to methods how we actually do this yeah maybe tell me tell me a little more about the willingness to pay you know you you mentioned yes. that it is not the it's not the customer's choice to say no. how much are they willing to pay it is the you know it is the seller it is the the startup who has to do it so how do they go about thinking about pricing plans i know very you know uh, i think we you and i we have touched upon this this is also very regional uh, you know uh, startups in europe and asia they underprice their products startups in the us they overprice their products uh, you know um, sometime back i think you and i we also touched about that if you ask them a direct question in the us they won't cringe about it but in asia and in europe they would cringe about it wow, so that's interesting uh, so how how should they think about pricing plans? I know there's so many methods, so many options there. Maybe if you could illuminate, uh, you know, the subject a little more. Cool. So maybe just like to address um, psychological barriers at first, at least like here in Europe and in Asia, talking about money is 
not perceived very nicely, right? So you need to be a little bit secretive, a little yeah, bit yeah. shy about your monies. This is the cultural norm here. And it's also not a very nice thing in our culture if somebody makes a lot more money than other people. So whenever you make like five times as much as your mother, some of the other stuff, and also you are anchoring, you are comparing what you're making as a business with your previous paycheck. And mm. very little people know how is are things with taxations before they are founders themselves, right? And they are like, if I did that for eight hours a week before and just like right now, is it okay to charge five times as much? Like it gets a little bit off. So the proxy that I like to use here is the value metric. Here, things are very simple. We are literally, price is just a mechanism of capturing the value that is being created for the product and we exchange this value with the customer. How to measure value? Sometimes it's very easy. For example, if you get me a client that will spend 50K with me, it's very logical for me to pay you 5K for your business development services because we can measure how much value did I get directly and we can agree on this exchange beforehand because we know exactly where we're standing. But things are not always simple. And that makes life more interesting. For example, um, one of my partners is Amplitude, right? And it is an analytical system. It's a digital platform to gain insights on products and on digital um, customer journeys. So their North Star metric, this is like the most important metric that describes the value that users are getting from the product, is weekly learning users. Whereas I could never, ever, ever discover how much value am I getting from the product if I'm observing some retention cohort mm -hmm. and they would never, ever, ever get the feedback loop, how it influenced my business directly. Um, just like the activity of engaging in the product and actively learning, actively increasing the business smarts of this has value. So that's a very important one. Not always is that very easy to do because sometimes we use even like easier proxies, for example, number of users, number of accounts created, then number of transactions. So we don't always have this perfect feedback loop of value exchange, but we can always find a proxy, some sort of metric candidate that indicates, okay, if they're consuming more of this, that definitely means that they are doing better and the product is continuing more value and something else is true. So um, we are very afraid of raising the prices. But whenever you are like literally developing and like releasing a new version of product, you are delivering higher value added and you should consider rather raising the price or creating like some sort of difference in the packages. Value, think value, not price. Price is a number that you put on value exchange. I'm noting down so many of the tidbits that you mentioned. You know, yes. you were Finally, was, finally, yeah. I had imposter syndrome before coming to this call, yes. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned anchoring, you mentioned try before you buy, you mentioned uh, value-based pricing, uh, you mentioned about, uh, you know, uh, could you tell, you know, maybe let's start with the story, right? The story is that this is an early stage founder and mm -hmm. they haven't yet sold their product to any customers yet. And some of the customers mm -hmm. they've been talking to, you know, have been trying their product right with you know kind of completely unbeknownst to them on what they would price it so how should you what advice would you have for this early stage founder uh, on to have that 
value-based pricing conversation with the customer. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you wouldn't say, like, just like the Austin Powers would say, $100 million, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. And I would say, like, it? double it, double it, and then add a zero either. <laughs> but I will do an experiment with you yeah. if you're okay with it. Absolutely. With something which is, like, really even more difficult to estimate the value than technology product. So mm -hmm. this is a piece of art. This is a piece of art, a wonderful illustration by our local artist. It can be worth a lot or it can be worth very little. So I will do the willingness to pay test with you now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gururai, would you pay $100 for this? No. Okay. Would you pay $50? Uh, yeah, maybe. Okay. Would you pay $70? Uh, no, I would pay less than 50. Okay. Would you pay 30? Maybe. Okay. Would you pay 40? No. <laughs> okay. Willingness to pay is approximately $30. $30. I think it was no, much I, more I expensive. Think... It's yeah. my collector piece, but okay. For you, it's worth that much. Okay. I just learned by doing an auction with you. That, and that testing is called uh, Gabor Granger method. And this is like a very, very, very weird way how to do, think about the pricing. But this is how we do it in real life, right? We like put down an offer and we put a price tag on it and then we test it. And whenever we see this ceiling, like whenever it doesn't land anymore, there is appears to be like a little bit of an issue and this is where we are trapped. So you're, just you're like right. from doing right. Just yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right. So, so I think, you know, uh, this experiment, you know, also teaches me something. So maybe we could do another experiment primarily around yes. anchoring. So let's say uh, this is $200 remote. Mm -hmm. Okay. How much would you pay for this one? This is a different one. This is 200. How much would you pay for this? Okay, now he's comparing two products and um, one of them has like a little bit more technical design, but this is like a yeah. remote control. I yeah. know that like remote controls cost approximately up to $50. So that would be my ridiculously expensive price range. And I know that whatever you buy for less than 10 euros, it's way too cheap, right? So I would price it and I would offer it um, between like maybe 20 bucks or something like that for it. Um, but I would have to learn more about the differentiation. And what he did now, how we explain this is another research method. So when we did the uh, auction, it was uh, Gabriel Granger. Now we are playing Van Vastertorp. And I'm so thrilled because you naturally went into this space as I could talk you from my mental process, how I would think about pricing, right? So I have some pre-existing perceptions. Then I have like a little bit of customer experience. Then I'm trying to negotiate with you a little bit to find a better deal because I'm a sneaky bastard as well. <laughs> and you would probably have to do 200 of those tests in order to find your real price. But if you don't have the opportunity to do a bunch of interviews or like a full-blown A-B test, you can still learn a lot from just like running a couple of demo calls, discovery calls with a couple of customers. And even if they say no, you ask them why. 
your power of learning is when you are asking the why question, right? And even if they refuse the offer, ask why they refuse the offer. This is how you learn. This is how you improve. And this is how you get better at communicating this. Because you, I will tell you a little trick. What I do to my clients is that I'm literally doing the mental math of ROIs for them, right? So whenever I have an offer mm. out there, um, I'm just like not even negotiating the price. I'm just like, listen, this will cost you 10 grand. If you think that by doing all this, you won't get like free additional customers and you want free X on this, then we don't have a discussion. We can just like drop the meeting just right now. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way of reframing it because cost is a pain, right? When somebody tells you a cost, like a price, it pains you a little bit. It's like, feels yeah. like snapping, you're yeah. losing something. But if you reframe it into a benefit conversation, in ROI conversation, and you can provide evidence that this will definitely work and like savings and like additional benefit and all the other sweet old benefits of B2B that could be at least approximately measured, um, you have a different conversation. It just flows much nicer. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm loving this conversation, Maya. I think you, you mentioned, you know, a couple of things. I'm just trying to recollect. The first one is you mentioned about you know, kind of an auctioning where you are doing suggested prices and you're you're giving ranges. Uh, and then we talked about some kind of an anchoring, kind of comparing one versus the other. Yeah, and the so, third... so just like to, to sorry, so just like to revamp. So what is too cheap? What is so cheap that you would literally like doubt the quality? That was the yeah. remote control experiment. Then what would be cheap? So aka a bargain. What would be expensive that you would? Hmm, not really getting this value and what would be outrageously expensive yeah. what would be yeah. like yeah. yeah these are the these are the ranges that you are trying to do based on investment often um but nevertheless uh look when you are an early stage founder you are not doing like scientific tests the most probably that you can do is a survey an a b test or just like running a couple of sales going this is realistically so Voila, I think that's maybe that's the trigger. So you start off with some range, some price point, and then experiment with it. What do you think? Maybe a slightly different question. What do you think about uh, try before you buy kind of a scenario? Could be a, either a you know trial plan, a reverse trial plan, a freemium plan. Uh, do startups think about it from the very get go at the you know at the at the conversation when they're having that with the customers, or they they should think about, hey, this is my ballpoint. Uh, this is my approximate range for the pricing. Why don't you try it? Uh, do they generally go like that? Or do they think about, let me go start with free trial? You know, do they have a very, uh, you know, intentional, purposed way to go and sell, which is, let me start with free trial, let me experiment with it. And then we'll base, base the pricing based on some numbers and then experiment with it. How, what do you see out there in the market? I see a trap. I literally okay. see a trap because if you don't assign a value to it, it's not mm -hmm. valuable. I mean, if you are just like giving it to for free without having like at least an early anchoring that there could be a package, 
that could even like raise customer concerns, such as, okay, mm -hmm. this is something, it's for approval or free, I will give it a shot, but is this business serious? Is it safe? Will they answer customer tickets? Are they going to be around for three more years? You know, it, it can like feel ambiguity, especially in B2B, when you have to make a very secure choice and you know how it goes, you cannot be fired if you hire IBM. <laughs> and these are like the risks that we are accounting for. So. I would definitely have some sort of paid offer, even if a dummy one. No need, no need. Just like to show that you are a serious business and that you are in it for a long term. That's possible. And just like when it comes to different pricing packages, you can even say that like it is an early bird price and it is just like available to first 200 mm. users of the platform that like this is your way of saying gratitude that uh, something will do. But definitely think about pricing and the business model from the get-go because otherwise you could be having like 500 users and a lot of costs for servers and no revenue coming in. And then like you would magically write, hi, from now on we are charging. And people would be, no, we use this product for free. Why are you punishing me? We like it, but like we don't necessarily yeah. want to pay for it. So it's all about the credit habit creation. And also an additional remark is that a lot of us product makers, we give too much of the product for free out. Their value is over-delivered. Like literally, we are robbing the customers of even having a choice to pay for the premium services. So when it comes to just like engineering, what is the added value of that must be captured in your free version of the product in order to deliver value, we can overgive there as well. So be very strategic, be very purposeful about what are the wow feature or what is the critical mass of usage. And there is no clear answer how to do this. You can only use this from doing like your own customer analytics and talking with customers. Nobody will give you a cooking recipe how to do this. It's not a cookie cutter. Uh, that's that's uh, you know maybe uh, you know we could probably end it at that. Be purposeful about your pricing. So, uh, Maya, such a wonderful conversation today. We started off with uh, yeah. growth oh my God, in PLG, I'm just and then we... are we finished? I know, already? I know, I know. We are almost we are out of time, and then uh, I'm happy to you know post back. Uh, and we should probably talk and riff more about okay. pricing. So, you know, where to, to ship this art for thirty euros? Uh, absolutely to US to Seattle. <laughs> No, it will uh, shipping will cost me more than I heard for this one. I, know, I was so just about to say that. I will do this. Oh, well, thank you so much, uh, Maya, for your time. Uh, one last question: That's How does person. someone reach out to you? Um, LinkedIn. Go to gtmstrategies.com and grab a free chapter of my book. Um, you see that like there is a lot of science into that. I've been working with some really cool companies on this HubSpot, Miro, Figma. Don't want to name drop, but they are really amazing. So you know what is it with this GTM and pricing and everything? This yeah. knowledge is not taught in business school, right? We are co-creating this together as a community. And I appreciate it, like this conversation so much because um, it's just like, these are the thoughts that we are developing as we are sharing examples and we are trying to search for patterns. There is no like Kotler-like marketing book for it. And luckily it is not because our space is changing at a faster rate than ever. And the only way how could we win it is to share knowledge and experience to each other. Thank you for doing this, you know, Maya. And uh, to all the listeners, uh, visit uh, gtmstrategies.com and grab a free chapter.
and I'm guessing if you are nice to her, she can actually send you more chapters to review as well. Uh, again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're negotiating. You're negotiating. You Always be selling. No, I don't mind. I mean, I'm literally here to help. So um, I'm getting amazing feedback from the folks so far. And if somebody needs something, of course, like you can ping and I will either like help with myself or direct you to the right person because I know how it feels from the get-go when there are so many unknowns and hey whoever has been there before I think that all of us have the empathy to just like be decent and respond to emails right absolutely absolutely and to all the listeners if you enjoyed today's discussion please do consider leaving your review in the podcast platform of your choice we'll be posting it uh, on all of the podcast aggregators. Your feedback makes a big difference to us. And stay tuned for all the insights. We'll have more guests and more demos. Until next time, keep thriving. Can't wait. So who's next?